0: Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. I've noticed that computing experts love speed races, and there's an ongoing battle to build the fastest computer on Earth. Usually the overall trend follows what is known as Moore's Law, with the speed of the fastest computer doubling every 14 months or so. But last week saw the announcement of a new kind of speed record. A team of scientists from Google said they used a quantum computer to solve a problem in less than four minutes that would have taken a traditional supercomputer 10,000 years to complete. In other words, in just 200 seconds, this computer did something that would have taken a classical computer thousands of years. This marked a moment that's being dubbed quantum supremacy. It kind of sounds sci-fi there. When computers using quantum methods, and and we're going to try to explain that in a minute, can do things that traditional computers just can't. At least not at a time frame that does us any good since we don't live 10,000 years. In other words, we could be entering a new era of processing speeds, and that's bound to bring some breakthroughs in things that impact our daily lives. Among the imagined applications are finding cures for diseases and and making super accurate weather predictions. But the quantum era is also likely to bring new challenges, since these kind of computers could also be used for things like hacking into bank accounts or, or spying in ways that just can't be detected. Naturally, we were curious, what could quantum computing mean for education? That's what we're exploring on today's episode. And to do that, we're going to get into what Albert Einstein once nervously called spooky science. But let's start with a physics professor who just happens to hold a different kind of speed record in wingsuit flying. W- wingsuit flying, that, that's jumping out of an airplane wearing an outfit that's something like a super strong cape.
1: Imagine you're just lying on the couch with your arms and legs spread out so it's basically like that, except you're going really fast across, you know, in the air. So there's a lot of noise, because imagine sticking your head out of the car at, you know, 200 miles an hour. It'll be loud. Um, so we, but we wear helmets that, you know, protect our ears.
0: That's Alexi Gald, a research assistant professor at the University of Chicago. His, his day job is trying new methods of quantum computing. And in his spare time, he's an avid wingsuit flyer. And he's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for achieving the fastest horizontal speed in in one of these real-life superhero outfits. That record he set, he was going over 200 miles an hour. I'm going to layer in some audio of him doing that as he explains what this is all like.
1: It feels like, like, it almost feels like flying, you know, like, like, like you're a bird because you have a full control over the direction and the speed at which you're going. So often we, we see a nice looking puffy cloud and we just fly towards it and then we carve around it or we fly directly almost through it if it's a small, tiny, little uh, cumulus cloud. Um, so it's a lot of fun. You have It's this three-dimensional playground that you have.
0: This kind of skydiving is still pretty unusual. To even qualify to do it, you have to have gone on at least 200 regular skydiving jumps. So before I dug into asking Galda about his quantum computing research, I just had to ask whether this hobby attracts a bunch of physicists who understand the concepts of, you know, like aerodynamic forces.
1: It's interesting that um, in the sport of wingsuit flying, uh, actually I I meet a lot of really technical people, like people who work in finance or, you know, they're software engineers, but people with a mindset that, you know, they, they do something so they do some calculations, so they, they have this analytical mindset. And I think it's because this discipline of wingsuit performance flying that I do, it, it's, it attracts this kind of people for some reason. And I, I, the reason why, I think, is because so how does it work? So we go and make a skydive. So we fly with a certain goal, say, covering the most ground over, uh, you know, between a certain altitude window. And then we land and we plug in our GPS device into the computer and we look at different graphs and we like, study these plots and it looks almost like, very sort of geeky that you just sit down after your skydive and you stare at the monitor for like 15 minutes trying to figure out what you did, what you could improve. Uh, you know, and So this kind of sport that I do, this uh, wingsuit performance flying, requires you to be to analyze every jump and to think about what you can improve. And that's all based on GPS data, you know, it's sort of spreadsheet kind of data uh, that you plot uh, you know, on, on the graph and you look at it. And so I think that's the kind of, that's why a lot of analytical people are attracted to this point. Okay, that's, that's
0: enough human speed demon for now. After all, I did go all the way to Galda's office to, to learn about these new quantum speeds of computing. Let's start with the basics. So what is quantum computing?
1: So quantum computers are fundamentally new types of computers. So right now we you know, widespread are classical computers. It, it's essentially the, the regular uh, processes that are in our phones, in our laptops, all of them, all of them are essentially classical computers, and they work on, uh, by manipulating bits, like one or ones or zeros, right? So quantum computers are fundamentally different things that operate quantum with quantum bits called qubits. And those are, they can not, not only occupy one and zero, they have a much wider space that they can op- operate in. So essentially, the computation that you can theoretically do with a quantum computer can be done uh, for certain algorithms much faster than it can be done in, in a classical computer. So what why we need quantum computers is that is because they would... We don't have them yet, that, at, not, not at the level that will allow us to sort of outperform classical computers yet. But in theory, in the future, cl- uh, classical computers will take you know, thousands of years to solve a certain problem, while a quantum computer would be able to solve that problem within minutes. So that's the hope. You know, we will be able to perform certain types of calculations um, much, much faster, exponentially faster with quantum computers than with classical computers.
0: And how does this high flying professor specifically work on this quantum computing stuff?
1: So, I work in a uh, specific field of condensed matter physics. So, um, I study generally the uh, dynamics, the time evolution of really tiny, tiny physical systems. We, they can be spin, like super small, nano-sized magnet, magnetic particles or uh, transport of charge, so electrons in, in low-dimensional systems. Um, in terms of quantum computing, I'm currently uh, looking at uh, studying, so in, in implementing some of the physics that I'm studying, so non-equilibrium physics, implementing that using existing uh, quantum hardware.
0: I've got to be honest i was feeling a bit over my head sitting in this lab at the university of chicago talking theoretical physics i majored in english back in the day and i I do love science fiction and and this was actually sounding right out of the novel i'm reading these days the three-body problem by chinese author Liu sixen people should check that out actually if you if you're interested anyway as i was putting this podcast together i saw a column in inside higher ed about the possibilities of, of what quantum computing could mean for education written by Ray Schroeder, the Vice Chancellor of Online Learning at the University of Illinois at Springfield. So I gave him a call for his take.
2: Quantum computing is uh, a very new field, It, uh, but, but it had been visualized way back in Einstein's time. We saw the potential for quantum, which is really generally subatomic uh, work, that using quantum physics, quantum mechanics to uh, power computing. So, so every year we're seeing the growth of quantum computing in what, frankly, if you graph it, it looks at all the world like a vertical line because it's a double exponent. Not, a, not only exponential growth, but double, uh, two exponents. Uh, and it's just phenomenal the speed with which we are going to grow
0: our computing ability. So with all of these futuristic technologies, you just have to ask, like, so what? Um, what can we do with this new computing speed?
2: What this design is, is that if you have massive data sets, and I don't want to raise hopes, but but let me say, for example, we have collected data on um, cancer for decades, for, yeah. for a long period of time. If we were able to gather all those data together, then a quantum computer might be able to sort through it and find evidence of cause and effect, not just, uh, you know, coincidental instances, but cause and effect. And and for weather, you know, I, I follow the weather carefully. Uh, you know, I'm in the Midwest and we have extremes of weather. Um, and, you know, forecasts are getting better and getting better. But if we were able to dump all the data into a computer, we could then simulate these scenarios much, in a much finer
0: detail and make much better predictions. What I really wanted to hear about from Schroeder, since that's his expertise, was his thoughts on what all this can mean for education.
2: Yeah, you know, I've been teaching in, in higher ed since 1971, I, I started. So it's been, you know, nigh on half a century, forgive me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in almost every class, I, you aim at the center of the class. And you know that some of the students are going to struggle a little bit, and some of the students are not going to be challenged. Um, so that's been a shortcoming of our education: is how do we process those uh, accelerated learners more quickly, and how do we better serve those that come to us with a deficit of one sort or another? Perhaps the prereq they took didn't fully teach them. You know, so what this allows us to do is to use to take enormous amounts of data and to drive what we have currently adaptive learning in a much more refined way so that for each student we can refine the learning so that they can optimize their time and we're not giving them redundant information and we're not giving them stuff way out of their reach so uh so using artificial intelligence certainly and uh Using adaptive learning, which drives artificial intelligence, but stepping back one step using quantum computing to drive artificial intelligence, to drive adaptive learning, allows us to provide a very robust system that can be responsive to an incredible range of, uh, of knowledge and abilities and preferences of students.
0: Is it, I mean, I don't know, just to play devil's advocate, is it, is it really the speed of the computing that's holding back to adaptive learning? Or isn't it more practical of other concerns about even just implementation? It, it's, I don't feel like people are sitting there as students are waiting for the answer for the computer. To like They're not like twiddling their thumbs while the computer is processing.
2: No, what, but what adaptive learning does um, is that it can create a curriculum. They can say, you know what, Ray, you just don't seem to get this, you know, uh, quantitative computing or you don't get, uh, you know, advanced calc. And so we're going to toss in some advanced calc, even though we're in yet a more advanced class. So we're going to change what you're taking in this class so that we, we fill in those deficits. So what's holding it up? Yes, it's institutions being able to do that too. Algorithms and uh, designs of uh, adaptive learning that, um, that will respond to those students. But ultimately, it's the ability to gather all this data. And of course, we have questions of privacy, but you can gather data from, you know from preschool on, and then get a much better picture of where that student is excelling, where that student is dragging, and how we might better uh, provide education. So, kind of a holy grail has been individualized learning and personalized learning. Individualized is more broad than personalized, but but what quantum computing will allow us to do, ultimately, and. You know, artificial intelligence with standard supercomputers will allow us to get a long way toward that personalized learning.
0: Of course, with a technology this powerful, there's always the potential for downsides. For instance, it's easy to imagine a quantum computer being used to to break encryption on banking and other important troves of our personal data. Does Alexi Galda at the University of Chicago worry that the tech he's building might be hard to manage once it's out there in the world?
1: I don't think so, because there exists a, s- a separate field of study, field of research called quantum cryptography. So people are already developing uh, new quantum algorithms that they can implement once that quantum hardware comes around. So I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, uh, any, uh, uh, you know anyone cracking our security and now all of our money is, is gone from a bank account i don't think that will happen um what's going what will happen is once someone can realize you know uh, uh, can implement some of these codes on the quantum computer then the quantum cryptography will you know protect us from our from the security being gone so I think we, we, should need to, we shouldn't worry about this. It's, it's a natural progress of science, and once we have those quantum computers, the new levels of protection will, will make sure that uh, we can sleep uh, and have our money in the bank.
0: <laughs> but then again, Galda's tolerance for risk is, is way higher than mine, and, and honestly, probably higher than just about anyone I've ever met. For instance, in, in all that wingsuit flying he's done, he, he's had his main parachute fail. But to him, that was actually not that big a deal.
1: When you deploy your main parachute, if it doesn't open, uh, it opens. But if it doesn't open perfectly, like you would want, like you'd have some line twists, for example, um, you then may decide to abandon your main parachute and then cut it away, start falling again, and you, you open your reserve parachute. So that happened to me twice. And you really don't have time... To think about, to stop worrying about it really too much. You know what you need to do. You know you're going to be fine. You know, you, know you're at, you have enough altitude to deal with the situation. Yes, it didn't work out perfectly. You can cut away your main parachute. You can open your a reserve parachute and you're under a perfectly flying canopy and you just go and land. And so I don't think I was terrified or... In this situation, it's just something that you need to deal with. Like when you're driving, you need to avoid a car that's just pulled out of a side street. You know, you do what you need to do and move on with your life.
0: <laughs> Ray Schroeder, the online learning dean, said he's never jumped out of an airplane. And he actually does worry about the potential pitfalls of this super fast computing. So the questions with this
2: has to do really with um, number one, um, we're concerned about privacy. Uh, what, what will drive uh, quantum in higher ed is access to very deep and enormous data, huge data sets. And you are exposed, um, your information is exposed to this computer. So that's one challenge. Um, you know, you have a kind of a, a, a second challenge as you move forward, taking a look at the way in which algorithms are written. Um, in artificial intelligence, because currently, uh, we have uh, an incomplete uh, array of programmers in this field. And by that, I mean, underrepresented areas include women, certain cultural uh, areas, and racial areas. So then if the computer is making these decisions, the decisions are driven by, we'll say, as of today, kind of a predominantly white male approach. Is that giving us the right representation? Maybe not. As we go from culture to culture, in our current culture, are we fully representing those? No, we're not. Um, and that's true of artificial intelligence. So, you know, and when I talk about quantum, I'm talking about it most often as a driver of AI, you know, of of, of Really, fully realizing AI, so that's a problem. There are there are serious questions about those algorithms.
0: There's another thing about quantum computing that Ray Schroeder threw in there as we wrapped up our conversation.
2: But I but I I do want to mention to you, um, you know, the, the potential certainly um, that we have for uh, entanglement, and I don't know if you've looked at that at all. Quantum entanglement. No, so, what's that? Yeah, you know, that may be a different topic, but uh, down the line, uh, Albert Einstein, this was theorized way back in Einstein's time, and Einstein called it spooky, spooky entanglement because it broke all his, many of his laws. And this is the deal. If you have two qubits, those, those bits, and usually those are photons or electrons, but But just this last week, Johns Hopkins announced that they have created a medium on which a qubit can be stored in uh, a superconducting mode. So we'll have another alternative. But this is it you put those two together and they become entangled. Then you send one far away. The Chinese put one up in space, 10,000 miles away. If you do something to this qubit, it instantly changes that qubit and so like if you go from a zero to a one or or a one and zero as you change them but not only that this they use subatomic or rather atomic clocks i'm trying to get my fingers here so it happened faster than the speed of light faster than the speed of light could change and nobody knows
0: how that happens that's right these subatomic particles can be linked in some way that even quantum computing experts just don't understand, and in ways that don't fit at all into Einstein's theories of the universe. In fact, until his death, the famed scientist wrestled with trying to fit quantum computing into his framework. As he wrote, Quantum mechanics is very impressive, but an inner voice tells me that it is not yet the real thing. The theory produces a good deal, but hardly brings us closer to the secret of the old one. I am at all events convinced that he, meaning God, does not play dice. But now that quantum computing is becoming more of a reality, these theoretical debates could have real-world impacts, as Ray Schroeder points out. Let's say you're on your computer doing your banking.
2: You can do something with an entangled qubit, and it will appear in your bank, and nobody right now can intercept it. Nobody knows how it gets there, and it gets there faster than the speed of light. So these are the kinds of things in quantum mechanics, but also quantum computing, that are enormously important
0: and are going to make huge differences in our lives. I feel like I have to say, this quantum computing is still years and maybe decades away from coming to any classroom. And it it may come kind of slowly. Here's Galda again.
1: Practical algorithm on a quantum computer I think probably at least a decade away. But what people are trying to do, they're working on hybrid algorithms. So if you have a certain problem that cannot be done completely in the quantum computer, people are trying to think of a way to sort of do half of it and do the fast bit that a quantum computer allows to do, and then doing the rest with a classical computer. So just like hybrid cars, you know, you have a an electric motor and a still an internal combustion combustion engine. So just like that, people are applying this idea in, in quantum and classical computing, merging the two and trying to get the benefit of the existing quantum computers uh, for the real computations. Meanwhile, he does think wingsuit flying will catch on
0: more widely as a sport, though he admits it's expensive to get into. In case you and I don't ever do it, here's one last description of what it's like.
1: So I stretch my wingsuit in all possible directions. So I, I, tens- you know, I, I tension my arms and legs, and the suit inflates, so it basically becomes a semi-rigid wing. And I, fly in the, I can fly in this configuration for several minutes. Um, the airflow sort of comes into the wing, wing, wingsuit. We have two arm wings and one tail wing. They all look like one single wing, but actually they are three separate chambers. Um, so it becomes a very rigid structure and then you fly like this for a couple of minutes until you reach about 3,000 feet. That's when it's time to open your main parachute. So I basically slow down a bit. The airflow, the S, my air speed decreases, so the pressurization of the suit decreases. That allows me to easily reach back with my arms and pull a so-called pilot chute. It's a small, like a jellyfish kind of looking. Uh, small parachute that comes out of my uh, container and then it pulls out the main parachute. So that's a deployment sequence. You pull a small pilot chute, that pulls out the main parachute and it's open. So from that point, so you're at about 3,000 feet and you have about a minute to uh, make a safe landing at the drop zone, so at the airport from where you took off. You land, you go back into the hangar Pack your main parachute in 10 minutes, and you're ready to go again. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Each week, we find adventurous
0: educators like these and hear their thoughts about the future of education. To find more information and some pictures and videos of Alexi Galda's wingsuit flying, visit our show page. You can find it by going to edsurge.com and clicking on podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for unusual people or stories at the intersection of education and tech, please send them to me at jeff at edsurge.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend so we can continue to grow our audience. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next Tuesday with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.